0: All right, let's jump into Mark. This is our second week into Mark, Servant Hearts, Kingdom Minds. We're gonna be walking through the story of the paralytic man, and it is gonna be about the worthiness of God and how awesome he is in our lives and lots of practical things for us to discover in this text. So we're just gonna run through this text, we're gonna read it, and we're just gonna kind of bring out the things that are, are, are teachable moments, teachable thoughts within this text. And so let's just jump into chapter two, starting in verse one. So it says in Mark 2, it says, And when he returned, Jesus that is, to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. And so Jesus is just blowing people's minds. And so last week we walked into Mark 1 and we talked about the first words that Jesus uttered in public, in his public ministry. And those words, if you remember, were this, repent, which means to turn from one thing to another, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is near. And those are provocative words. And we try to break those down a little bit. But since that point, Jesus has been a pretty busy, busy guy. He has been healing numerous amounts of people. He has been speaking the word, the good news of Christ, wherever he goes in numerous situations. He is, He's making a name for himself. He's, he's kind of uh, building an audience. People are beginning to notice. They are talking about him. From the moment that Jesus first utters those words, you've got to understand that he has started the clock. And it will end with him being executed. And really, it's hard not to be noticed if you're Jesus in this scenario. Like if you're doing the kind of things that he's doing and saying the kind of things that he's saying, you better expect a crowd. Like if you had a neighbor and your neighbor came up to you and said, uh, "Dude, look, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is near." First of all, you think he's a crazy guy, and he probably is. But if he healed a guy that was in leprosy, like his flesh was falling off, and it somehow was not falling off anymore, and he cast out demons, you better believe people are going to be putting tents in your yard because this guy has got something going that they're noticing, all right? So just expect that. So Jesus is doing all of these crazy things, and he's being noticed by it. Crowds are beginning to be built around it. And not surprisingly, people are just... Opening their mouths, talking about all the things that he's doing. I love that Jesus tries to—he tries to kind of prevent this a little bit. Uh, And I don't know the full reasoning why he did this, but in some instances, when he heals people here early, he'll say to that person, "Hey, don't, don't go and tell anybody. I don't want you to say anything." Because Jesus knows he's going to be building crowds, and crowds makes things more difficult for Jesus. But listen, I would be the same way. If, if my flesh was falling off and you put it back on Jesus, I'm going to tell somebody about it. And so nobody keeps quiet about this stuff, and so he's just building this clamor. And so we've got a bit of a buzz here before chapter 2 begins. And so Jesus has been a, a lot of different places in Galilee, but he comes back to Capernaum, which is where Peter is from, and he sets up shop there for a little bit. The the word record that that the crowds are are growing, and Jesus escapes into the wilderness. Sometimes he goes into a desolate place to find some solitude to get himself right with God, and then he works back into the town where he's going to do some ministry. And so, just like what is striking to me, like just here in one and two, is just the tremendous burden that is on our Savior. Just the burden. Everybody needs something, wants something from him. Have you ever been in a scenario where where you were walking in that you knew that this whole thing, people are going to need something from me? That's Christ's whole life. This isn't a work that is pleasing and pleasurable to him as far as work. This is not about his happiness. He is God and he has humiliated himself by coming in the form of flesh to do a work that's needed to be done. And it is a burden and he just is incredible. Everybody wants something from him, and he gives everybody what they need. And so he's in Capernaum, and he's in this house, and we, we believe that home to be Peter's. Uh, just it's, Capernaum is a trade city. It's right on the Sea of Galilee, and, and lots of people, so it's a busy city. We believe that he's probably with Peter in his house. Not a huge home, decent home, but it says that the crowd is huge. huge. How would you like to have a crowd in your house of people so full they are literally coming out your front door and they're onto the street? That's how full this house is. People are just wanting to figure out who this Jesus guy is, what he's about. And what we can tell is that this is kind of a seeking crowd. These are people who've heard of the deeds, heard of the wonders of Jesus, and they've got to see firsthand what this guy is about. And so they're just, they're kind of selfishly there to inspect this Jesus guy. And we know that because here comes an almost dead guy on a stretcher with four people trying to make a, get through the crowd. And not one of them looks at him and go, oh, you know what, you probably should see Jesus. No, if this was a group of believers, you think there would be compassion on this gentleman that's almost dying in the stretcher. But these are selfish people trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is. And so it's just, it's to our benefit because these four guys start to get creative they're carrying this dead dude on their, their back or on the, the, on the stretcher and trying to get him through. And the word says that and when they could not get near Jesus because of the crowd, they removed, they just removed the roof. It's just logical. Let's just get, get the roof out of the way. And they made an opening and they let him down from there, the paralytic man. And so let's really understand what's happening here. Uh, they can't find a way to Jesus. And so they decide and, and they're determined that they're going to make it. So they go up this external staircase, and the word records that they, they went through the roof. Crazy. It's not like vandalism. There would have been removable pieces in the roof. But how, if you're Peter, and you got people coming through your roof now, what? i got people spilling drinks everywhere. I'm starting to get frustrated just talking about it. And now somebody's breaking into my ceiling. But Jesus is just a guy that people want to see. He's just to so lower him down in front of him, And Jesus begins to do something pretty cool. Now the word does not speak a whole lot about this paralytic man. It doesn't say much about him. Uh, The word uh, in other translations would say palsy. And so you have paralytic, you have palsy. Palsy is kind of a, maybe you've heard of Bell's palsy, where you kind of lose part of your feeling in your face or your body, and it's kind of paralyzed in some ways. That's what they would say that this man had, a form of palsy. We don't know the causation of the paralysis. We just, we just know that he's been sick probably for one, some time, and people know that. Uh, notice that there's no words that are uttered by this man, right? The Bible does not denote that there's anything rec- said by this man. Uh, in another miracle, when it comes to a paralyzed man, uh, the word attaches that this man was in agony. And this and this story does not say that this man is in agony. So what we can be led to believe because of the urgency of his friends, this is a pretty wretched situation. This guy is on the verge of death. He's essentially, he is a, he's just a body on the verge of death in a stretcher. There's not much to him. He's, he's almost, almost dead. So rightly assume that. And in, in the reading that, that we, we have here, what strikes me is I think this is important to see that when we're reading this part of Mark 2. This paralyzed man, uh, this man with palsy, he's lost all sensation in his body. He cannot move. He, he's, he's essentially dead weight. He, he cannot feel anymore the disease that is crippling and destroying his body. He's numb to it all. And so what I want you to understand is that there is no random story in Scripture. Jesus is not writing about some random story guy that he's going to heal. There is a, an important point to this paralytic man because you have to understand that that guy that has, that's paralyzed, that's, that's me. You are the paralytic person. That is you because without the forgiveness of our sins, without Christ's forgiveness and atonement for our sin, we are dead. We're dead. We are spiritually dead and we will be physically dead too. And so this paralytic man is an emblem for a human being in sin. There is a disease that is plaguing the hearts and the minds of God's creation, and it is not ramified or unless Christ forgives it. So this is us in here with a condition of sin that needs to be forgiven or we will die. And then what grips me about these four friends is don't you just see the desperation and the determination in these guys to get their friend to Jesus, that they, they, would, they would get him in front of Jesus, one friend on each corner of the stretcher. Like this is like, this is when we talk about burden-bearing, burden-bearing, this is... This is a my life for you mentality that we talked about in Galatians. They are not looking in this situation thinking, how are you going to please me? They are looking in that situation and saying, how can I bless this gentleman? And they are determined to get there. There there is not an obstacle in their way that they're going to let determine. Like, look, here's the deal. If Olive Garden has more than a 15-minute wait, I'm not going there, okay? But these guys... They just don't let adversity get in their way. Where many of us, like myself, would would see this kind of obstacle in our way, we would cave in and we'd stop and we'd say that this is impossible. But the word shows that they didn't gasp at adversity. They pushed through it. They showed grit. They had faith that Jesus could actually do something for their friends, and and God rewards that faith. They were desperate to get their friend in in front of Jesus, and they found a way. And, And I think that we all have to ask the question. When, when I read this, I ask the question, would I? Would I be that desperate to get my friend in front of Christ? Would we be that desperate to show this kind of grit so our friends could see Christ, that they might come to know him, that they might experience his grace? Because we all, we all have spiritually sick people in our lives, we all have people in our lives that are spiritually sick. Are we holding on to a corner? Is there a corner of a stretcher somewhere that we're holding on to, or have we ever picked one up? Maybe we just fear that there's going to be resistance. Sometimes we we kind of build anxiety around. Well, if I kind of want to bring somebody to Christ, they're just going to resist. Or maybe you felt resistance in a scenario. But these guys, they found a way. They didn't. They didn't let a little resistance a little adversity from the crowd stopped it. They didn't drop a corner. And so, look, here's the bottom line. I I think this speaks to me, and I think it speaks to you. If we value something, if something means something of great value to us, we will find a way, whether creatively or by force, to make it happen. If we have value in something, We will find a way. We will move heaven and earth to make sure that we can do those things or somebody else can do those things. And so the the question that I ask myself is, do I value the Lord and my friends this much? Because we will get creative to make things happen if they mean something to us. There's a guy in Turkey. He is a crazy fan of a soccer team. I don't understand why people would be crazy about soccer in general. It just doesn't make sense to me. Sorry about soccer fans out there. But he's a fan of this team in Turkey, and he is like a, a leader in their cheer block. He's, a, he's an older gentleman. Uh, he's super passionate about this stuff. He got way too passionate about it, and he, he, he got into an altercation with some fans, and the club, the soccer club, kicked him out of the stadium for a year. Now, his name is Crazy Alley, and you should probably understand from that name that he's not just going to settle for being kicked out of the stadium. And so Crazy Ali, who loves this soccer team, values this soccer team, is going to find a way to be with this team. And so here what, here's what he does. He has to sign in before every game at the police station that he's not at the game. The first game that he had to do that, he signs in the police station and he goes to a rental company and he rents an industrial crane. And he pulls the crane up right outside of the stadium and he lifts the crane up, the boom up over the stadium, not in the stadium, so he can watch his team. This is what it looked like. This is Crazy Alley. And he led Cheers from on top of that industrial crane. Now, he wasn't up there for long because the police came and they lowered the boom, literally and physically, and they took him to jail. He violated uh, some sort of trespassing rule, I'm sure but do you see the desperation within Crazy Alley to see a soccer team? How much better is our Father than heaven than a soccer team? Do we share this kind of desperation, this value in who Christ is, that we would be creative in our friends coming to know Christ? I'm sure all of us at some point, we, we were brought to the Lord, and I'm sure that there were people who were intentional with their thoughts of like, I know with me, like, how am I going to conversate with Steve about who Jesus is? How am I going to show his love? Do we value the Savior that much that we would show this kind of desperation, this determination in the face of resistance, that our friends could meet Jesus? They could experience his grace and his mercy. And so it's interesting that when Jesus sees this man... The first thing he does is he doesn't he deal with his condition as far as physically. But what does it say he did? He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we may think that's odd. Here's this guy that's gonna die. And the first thing that Jesus does is forgive this man's sins and doesn't deal anything with his physical condition. So why does he forgive his sins? Like, d- does sin and disease have a link? Does sin cause physical disease? Well, I would say yes and no to that. It's not always the case that because you have sinned, it's not always, it's not, and it's most often not the case that if you sin, you're not going to get a disease. Jesus, when he's speaking in another story, there's the disciples see a man blind from birth, and they said, "Who sinned, this man or his parents?" Because in that time, they believed that sickness was was the fault of sin in that person's life. But Jesus says this: neither. It's not about sin here. It's about me being able to show my glory on earth. And so don't, don't believe in this, reading this text, that, that you, you are sick because you have sin in your life. But understand this. Listen, all sin, all, all I should say all disease, all destruction, all decay is the result of sin entering into the world, right? The, when the garden existed, there was no sin, and therefore there was no disease, there was no destruction, there was no death. And so sin does have a res- root in disease and death and destruction. And, and that is what Christ is more concerned about than your physical comfort. He's more concerned about your heart, healing your heart. And so the men get creative to get in front of Jesus. He says, your sins are forgiven. And that's exactly what the Messiah is going to do. Like, you have to understand that Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the cross at this point. This whole ministry that he has is about the forgiveness of sins. Repent and believe that the kingdom of near is is true because the king is on the move right here. Jesus the king is on the move, and he's on the move to Jerusalem where he's not going to sit on a throne of splendor. He's going to hang on a cross to deal with our sins in a very brutal and, and hateful way. This is the work that he is going to do, and it's a work that is good as done so he can say, your sin is forgiven. But why do these friends bring this guy to Jesus? I don't think it was there. They brought him there so they could, he would say, your sins are forgiven. They wanted him to be physically healed. They wanted to see him walk out of the mat. They had heard that he had done some spectacular things. Wow. Jesus attacks the sin. The difference here, the difference here, I, I think, is that we look at the felt need more than we look at the heart need. Jesus always looks at the heart need over the felt need. This man, yes, he has a physical element that's ravaging in his body, he's going to die, but the more important need is the heart need. The forgiveness of sins. Christ wants to heal the heart. Because if he died, even though he was physically healed, he was doomed. But if his heart was healed, his sins were forgiven, and his body was still decaying, guess what? He's still golden. Because he's got right standing in front of the Father. And so Jesus is always going to attack the sin, he's always going to attack our heart. I said, he's always going to be more concerned about your heart than your comfort. Always, 100% of the time. And so for us, being a part of the kingdom of God doesn't mean that all of your felt needs are taken care of. Just because this guy was healed doesn't mean that all of our felt needs are satisfied on this earth. It doesn't mean that God is going to give us all that we want on this earth. It doesn't mean that all your goals, all your comforts, all your conveniences are going to, give to you, be given to you. That's not a proper perspective. If anyone sells you on that bag of goods in Christianity, they're a fraud because that's prosperity crap. And Jesus has never promised us an easy life. He's just promised himself to us. And so the right perspective of us and our felt needs for us is to understand that those are opportunities for you to come in front of the Messiah. This man would not be in front of Jesus if he wasn't sick. He was sick and he got in front of Jesus. Jesus. Sometimes the Lord breaks us so we get in front of the Messiah, the King, and he can do a hard work inside of us, not so you can get what you want. The kingdom of God is about understanding your brokenness, your mess, as an opportunity to come in front of the risen Savior and for him to look at you and say, my son, your sins are forgiven. I love you that much, and to let him work in your life to have repentance in front of him, to walk with him, to understand that he has seen you at your worst moments, your messy moments, and he still said, son, your, fr- your sins are forgiven. But in the story, Jesus doesn't just heal the heart need. He heals the felt need. And it creates this stir amongst these scribes. And the scribes are simply like lawyers in this time. They're, they're experts in the legal law. There's scribes in the Pharisees. There's scribes in this group called the Sadducees. There's scribes in the group called the Essenes. These are the three big religious classes. There are scribes underneath. So the scribes, the Pharisees are here and they are blown away. Do you understand this? When Jesus says that your sins are forgiven, there is not a more galvanizing statement that he could have made at that moment in that time. He, would, he could not have said anything more radical in that moment. Because listen, in that time period, in those, those people's history, they would have known prophets who would have spoken a word to them that they didn't understand, they didn't see. So Jesus coming and, and teaching something new about the way of God is not like old, it's, it's not old hat, it's just not uncommon. The kings and the prophets in the Old Testament, there are instances where they heal people. And so there's not a stirring up of controversy and, and um, amazement around Jesus because he's healing and he's speaking differently. No one has ever said or uttered the words that your sins are forgiven without precursor, the precursor of that your Father in heaven is going to do it. Jesus is taking his own authority here, and he is saying that your sins have been forgiven. Nobody in the history of the world has ever said that. And there are people in that crowd that are stirred up in awe and anger because this is blasphemy, according to some people. Blasphemy is an offense against God. The scriptures are clear in the book of Isaiah, Psalms, and Daniel. It is God and God alone that saves and heals sin. Nobody else does. And so if Jesus is saying that he can forgive sins, you better believe he's making a claim to be God. He's making a claim to be God here, and he's rising up, a lot of different sentiment in people. And so he forgives his sins. And then he heals this man in his palsy. And it gets crazy. He just kicks it up a notch here. People are wrestling with what is this guy doing? But Jesus is saying, look, what is easier for me to do? Forgive sins? Yeah, it's easy for me to forgive sins, but I also can make people walk. So I'm not only gonna forgive people's sins, I'm gonna show my authority by calling this man to get up off the mat and walk. And so that's what he says. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. And there is tons of nuggets in that sentence for us to digest. Ultimately, salvation and forgiveness is dependent on God. God restores us, God redeems us. He is the one that sets us free but he did not pick up this mat for this gentleman. He did not pick up his bed. There is a work to be done by this gentleman after his salvation, after his sins are forgiven, that is his own work to do. Jesus says, pick up your mat. And the same is true for us. There is a work that is to be done in us. I have said this before, that Jesus has removed every obstacle in your life for you to have a right relationship with God except for your desire. He has set you free. He has healed you. He has made you whole again. But we are to walk worthy of that in which we received. We have our own works to do. We have our things that we have to to, to do in this world. There's a kingdom work to be done and, and we have to pick up our own mats and we have to go because of what he's done for us. And lastly, what I love about this phrase is that he says, go home. And I wrestled with this for this week because there are instances where Jesus says to somebody that he heals, come and follow me. There is a personal invitation that Jesus always gives to us to follow me as far as as God, as the son of God, follow me in my way. But there is a little invitation to many to say, come and follow me on this earthly ministry. But in this situation, he tells this man to go home and you would think it would be logical that to have this, you would want this guy in your party, your entourage, the guy that you almost raised from the dead. That's street cred, where you go. But Jesus says, go home. And I'm confused by that. But here's, here's what I've been led to believe in that. Look, I think that we all have this desire in us to do great things in the kingdom of God, that we want to serve God in huge, profound ways that maybe get us noticed. And there are some people that God is calling into that. That when we read into our ancient history of, of people with bold, heroic faith, the people of the past, even people of the present, we say, I want that, God. I want to be that kind of follower of you to do radical things for you. But Jesus doesn't say that for this guy here. What does he say? He says, go home. There is work to do at home. Look, God has called us to make a difference everywhere we're at. For some of you, he's called into the world. For some of you, he's called to go home. And that is just as an important call as any other call to go home. Because here's the thing God won't let his design be sabotaged. If you're not faithful in the small things, why would God ever allow you bigger things to be faithful in? God has a way, a design for fathers, for mothers. For siblings, for daughters, for sons, to be godly in those things. And He has called us all to be faithful in those small things. He's not going to allow somebody to sabotage His design of family and structure and then say, oh, hey, go, go do this. You're going to get, be rewarded and, and be known. No. We are to be faithful in the small things, to go home and be a follower of Christ there first. And maybe that's what he has for you in the entirety of life. But if we don't have that right, then why would we logically think that God would give us any more than that? His design, his knowledge, his presence is irrevocably linked to the design of his family. And so we have to get that right first. That's where we have to be. So I love the story of the paralytic man. I think for for many of us, we we think of this as just, hey, it's a cool story. He healed a guy that couldn't feel anything, and he can heal. That's cool, God. But there's so much beauty within this passage to understand that, look, when Jesus talks about any person that needs to be healed, it's most likely a reference about you. Because without our sin being forgiven, we are dead. You are the paralytic man in here. We have to have forgiveness of our sins. That is the first and only thing that Jesus Christ is concerned about in the beginning. Your felt needs might come later. But this is a beautiful story of how Christ redeems us. And then for those of us who are redeemed, what a beautiful example in these four men to show the desperation that they had because of what Christ has done for them to bring somebody to Jesus. And so we are to carry our own corners in our life to be burden bearers, to get people to Christ, that they might experience his grace and his mercy, and that we would understand, like, some of us, we're going to be world changers, but some of us, the greater calling for you is to be moms and dads, and there is nothing to be ashamed about that. Oh, my word, there's nothing to be ashamed about the word of that. So, Mark 2. Lots of good nuggets. Next week, we're going to head into the crowds. Jesus always gets a crowd, but the way he interacts with crowds are way different than you and I would think that he would, and way different than you and I would probably would handle crowds ourselves. So uh, you can read into Mark 3 and kind of be with us as we walk into next week. So let's pray. Father, we just come before you today, and we give you praise as a good God who took care of our hearts You took care of our hearts, Lord. We may have come to you saying, Lord, I need this. But you said, no, what you need is forgiveness of sin. So, Lord, we just thank you for for dealing with a deeper need, our sin need. And so, God, we thank you for forgiveness. I pray that you would give us conviction and boldness in our life to think of people in our lives who need us to carry a corner. Uh, To to not let a little resistance get in our way, Lord, that we would be um, gritty in our faith, that we wouldn't allow the enemy to put obstacles in our ways that would deter us from continuing to pursue after the lost and the lonely. And so God, most of all today, we praise you as God that's worthy of all that we have and all that we do and all that we say. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.